I'm Erin. I'm Sarah. I'm Megan. And this is the Tribbles and Transporters podcast. You could write about something in science fiction. So I dreamed up the Star Trek idea so that I could comment on man and society. The whole show was an attempt to say that humanity will reach maturity and wisdom on the day that it begins not just to tolerate, but to take a special delight in differences in ideas and differences in life forms. You know the greatest danger facing us is ourselves and a rational fear of the unknown. There's no such thing as the unknown. Only things temporarily hidden, temporarily not understood. Open your mind to the past, art, history, philosophy, and all this may mean something. There comes a time in every man's life when he must stop thinking and start doing. Fear only exists for one purpose, to be conquered. We're going to stumble, make mistakes, I'm sure, more than a few before we find our footing. But we're going to learn from those mistakes. That's what being human is all about. The heart of real science fiction is stories about people and ideas. Because it says it's not all over, it's not going to go up in smoke, we're going to make it. Because it says the human adventure has just begun. Hey everybody, welcome back to episode 56 of the Tribbles and Transporters podcast. We're your three Trekkie gals who grew up in the 90s and fell in love with Star Trek for many of the reasons that you just heard. And uh, even though we consider ourselves Trekkies, there's a lot of Star Trek that we have yet to see, which is why we are going through all of the episodes of the completed series and learning about some behind-the-scenes stuff, talking about our reactions to the episodes and the movies, as in you know our case today. We'll also be uh, talking about topics within the Star Trek universe and do an interview with the occasional guest. But today's episode is all about Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. And if you're listening for the first time, we want to let you know very quickly who we are. My name is Sarah, and uh, TNG is my first love in Star Trek. Uh, I've not seen uh, very much of the rest of the series, so you know I'm kind of watching a lot of us for the first time for this podcast. I've not seen all the all of the movies either, and the ones I have seen, I've completely forgotten <laughs> about them, <laughs> except for the TNG ones. I feel like I remember those better, but. I have seen this episode, or not episode, this movie, The Voyage Home, a few times, actually. I think it's the only original series movie I've seen multiple times, and uh, I still had forgotten a ton of, a ton of it, so. <laughs> so yeah, it was a fun experience. And my name is Megan, and Deep Space Nine is my favorite show. Uh, Next Generation is um, a very close second to that. Um, as far as the movies are concerned, I have seen um, all of the movies, um, including the one that we are watched for this. Um, out of the original series movies, The Undiscovered Country, Star Trek VI, is my favorite, but this one is my second favorite out of this. So I was very excited to get to watch this movie again and to delve into it for the podcast. And my name is Erin. Voyager is my favorite uh, series of Star Trek, but I have also seen all of the movies. In fact, growing up, I had a box set of the VHS tapes of the original series movies, and they were well-watched, uh, including Star Trek IV, which, of course, I, I think it's one of everybody's favorite movies. Yeah. It's just so good. Um 
So I am really looking forward to talking about it for the podcast. Yeah. And uh, I, I just want to insert here, the reason we chose Star Trek four and not, we didn't start at the beginning with the motion picture and going you know chronologically through them was because we did put out a poll on um, social media asking which movie would you guys like us to review first? And this one won out basically, I think. So uh, that's the reason we're starting with this one and we'll probably do that I don't know. I don't know if we should continue to do it that that way because <laughs> I was really lost on some yeah. of this stuff. It may be easier just to go back to the beginning. <laughs> yeah. 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 In fact, I even thought about that for you. I was like, I don't know if Sarah's going to get all this. this I don't see no. I didn't understand anything about any of that. So, <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of things that carried through from uh, the third movie. So it it did take a little recalibration to go oh right yes they're referencing the previous movie in this one yeah and as far as like the search for spot goes i think it was one of those deals where it was like oh i caught it on a saturday afternoon on some random station and watched some (laughs) of it and did not watch the rest of it like i think that's what happened with search for spock for me so yeah so i was really lost but so before we go any further we just want to let you know what to expect for the rest of our episode we're going to go into the music challenge next followed by just a quick recap of the movie in case, you know, you're like B and you, you just don't remember, remember a lot of the stuff that <laughs> happened in it. Um, and uh, then we'll get into our What Did You Think segment, where we talk about just our really quick takes on what we thought about the movie. We'll get into our quiz where we quiz each other on just how closely we were paying attention while watching this. Then we'll do a little bit of behind the scenes and um, like guest star stuff and then get into the discussion about the movie and then we'll get to some of your listener feedback on social media uh but first the music challenge now uh we have switched it up this time once again this is only the second time we've done this on this podcast where i am the one that's going to be guessing the music this time (laughs) i volunteered to do this today because normally it's me who chooses a clip um of just like random star trek music and i play it for aaron and megan and they have to guess where it comes from in star trek uh and we do that because we like star trek music and it's just our kind of way to uh, pay homage to it but uh this time you know i'm giving them a break i decided (laughs) to sacrifice for (laughs) their mental good today i guess i don't know (laughs) and uh, i'm gonna be the one that's driven crazy by trying to figure out where this comes from so i'm a little nervous because i have a feeling that they've this is like a tricky one that they're doing on me today because Megan is the one that chose this and she just this is the way she thinks about stuff so <laughs> no the drawback is like as you said that I was like oh man I so missed an opportunity to do something else and I the next time next time <laughs> see this could be all part of her plot right here she's like trying to trick me into thinking that she didn't do this okay well we might as well just go for it here Okay, my first thought was Encounter at Farpoint, but... (laughs) That's what I usually guess. (laughs) No, it's not because of that, because it it kind of reminded reminded me of the the music that they play 
at certain points during that episode, but it doesn't sound ex- exactly. I feel like I've seen a counterpart point enough to know what the melody is that they play. And it was similar, but not the same. It is not in counterpoint. Okay, good. <laughs> I did wonder if you would guess that because it does kind of have that sound. Yeah. Is it from The Voyage Home? <laughs> I'm just going to throw that out No, there. that's okay. what I was talking about earlier. It's like, I missed this. I totally should have pulled from this and I didn't. <laughs> I think I even have this soundtrack in my car. <laughs> It doesn't sound like it would come from any of the modern iterations of Star Trek, I don't think. So it's either from one of the movies. It's not from a TNG movie either, I don't think, because I don't recognize that at all from any of their soundtracks. So that leaves me with the series and the original series movies. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Only like 30 years of Star Trek. Um, Let's see. (laughs) It has a bit of an older sound to it. Does it come from TNG? Yes. Okay. Does it come from season one of TNG? Yes. Okay. I can't believe this is actually right. <laughs> Are you going to make me guess, guess the episode? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> and you can't just start naming them from Encounter at Farpoint through the season. <laughs> this had, a, like, I'm looking at, like, something really pretty. Let's see here. One makes me think Haven because there are uh, lots of there's lots of gazing in that episode at, at pretty things. <laughs> so okay, <laughs> there, there is. Um, part of me thinks it could also come from one zero zero one zero zero one with Riker on the holodeck with Minuet. I'm gonna guess that one. Is that where it comes from? It is not that episode. Okay, dang it. Well, was it? Is it from Haven? Then it is not that episode either. Okay, um... Is it from an episode that I would like watching for some reason? I don't I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know you've seen this episode, but I don't know if you well, remember yeah. this episode. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, wow. wow. Okay. Um, then it must not be a, anything having to do with Riker, because I would remember that. Is it from We'll Always Have Paris? No. Is it from the first ten episodes of season <laughs> 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 no, it's not. <laughs> That's funny. It's definitely a me question right there. Um, <laughs> well, to down. be fair, we usually don't. She doesn't usually yeah. make us get down to the episode title. No, she doesn't. Not normally. <laughs> this is just payback. This is what this is. <laughs> it's from the latter half of the season. Is it from? I don't think it is because I feel like I may remember it. But um, is it from Skin of Evil? It is the uh, Tasha's like funeral scene. Uh-huh. Okay, yep. yep. <laughs> you got there. It is so pretty, and that that whole um, that that came from a nine minute clip. So it's nine it's nine minutes. Nine minutes. So it's got to be the entire scene. Underscore the entire scene. That seems nine minutes. Long. I guess so. <laughs> or gosh. they wrote it into a suite or something. But it came from that clip. So it's wow. just. I thought that was a gorgeous piece of music. Mm. It is very pretty. 
In the 23rd century, a mysterious alien probe is threatening Earth by evaporating the oceans and destroying the atmosphere. In their frantic attempt to save mankind, Admiral Kirk and his crew must travel back into 1986 San Francisco, where they find a world of punk, pizza, and exact change buses that are as alien to them as anything they've ever encountered in the far-off reaches of the galaxy. So what did you guys think? Well, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Well, I think we all said at the beginning, you know, this is one of our favorite movies. It's Star Trek just having fun with a fish out of water story, um, but one that is made all the more interesting because we are the ones that are understanding the context that these characters are in. And uh, I mean, the the longer... The, the further away we get from the airing date of this movie, I'm sure some things are becoming foreign to uh, to younger folks. But, uh, you know, for someone like me who, you know, I was born in the early 80s, so most of that was pretty familiar. Um, and just the the premise of it is it's unique, it's off the wall, but also has kind of a deep undercurrent of meaning to it. And the the characters just had fun with it. So uh, I love it. Um, First of all, this has to be like the dumbest plot ever for a Star Trek movie. (laughs) (laughs) But that said, I think it had a really good message. And it's just a really fun movie to watch. So I have a really short take on that one. (laughs) Yes, you do. I was quite ready. Um, Yeah, I mean, I love this movie, too. It's it's such a great cast interaction. with all of the original series cast, it's funny. Um, yeah, you get to see, you know, the technology that we grew up with, um, that people, that especially kids today, <laughs> looking at the computers back then would just laugh at, you know, how primitive that is compared to what we have today. Um, but it was just a, it's just a fun movie. Um, and it's got time travel. And whales. So, I mean, what more could you ask for? <laughs> well, I think we should ask uh, Ty here what he thought of the movie because he watched it with me. Um, so, what do you think, Mr. James Tiberius Cat? Meow. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> He's a man of few words. <laughs> But, you know, as our podcast mascot, or one of them now, uh, I felt it was important to ask him. (laughs) Oh, my word. (laughs) I said he's one of the mascots, Scarlett. Scarlett. (laughs) That's what she thinks of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) That is the second time Scarlett has had the... (laughs) Comedic timing. <laughs> she has lots of opinions on the movie. Oh, goodness. Yes, she does. <laughs> She's really upset about part of it right now. <laughs> she didn't like the punk either on the bus. Okay. Are you done? All right. Now it's time for the quiz. Got you pay attention. Write down all those star dates No more than a hint Which of the hosts knows more About the show 
The quiz is the part of the podcast where we each ask each other five questions to see which one of us was paying the closest attention while we were watching the movie this time. Uh, You can play along with us by keeping track of your score and letting us know how you did. And then when this episode airs, we will post a listener quiz question and you can answer that on our social media. So for the way the quiz works, uh, we will each take turns asking questions. Uh, We have five questions each and then we uh, total up the points. Now the the leaderboard so far... um, I have 16 wins, Sarah has 4, and Megan has 7. So now we will roll a die. This is the, the uh, best way we've found so far to randomize who gets to go first. Um, and I have assigned numbers to each of our names, and we will see who goes first. Huh, I get to go first this time. For quiz question number one. When Kirk and uh, Jillian are in the pizza parlor, uh, there is a container of breadsticks on the table. How many breadsticks are in that container? OMG. (laughs) (laughs) This is before one of them gets picked up and eaten. Uh, I'm going to say four. Six. Would you believe it was five? Five, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I would. (laughs) (laughs) It's four after one of them gets eaten. I had to count actually a few times because there are some um, angles where it looks like less, Uh, but uh, most often it is five. So that's the number I went with. Hmm. When the crew for question number two goes back in time, they need to figure out if they've arrived at an appropriate time in Earth's history. What is one of the ways that Spock determines they have arrived in the early 20th century? I'm going to fail at this. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember his exact phrase, but it's it's something to do with... um, like nuclear fission like um because we had the uh nuclear powered aircraft carriers so he had to wait (laughs) i forgot i don't know what he said exactly but something along those lines i got nothing i I really don't know (laughs) (laughs) i did not take good notes and i watched this movie two weeks ago so (laughs) i got nothing (laughs) it was the pollution content in the atmosphere that was it that that's what he said. I, I mean, he gave like uh, three or four different things. Did he not? Or it's possible. I only seem to uh, write one down. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. But I was gonna go with the the nuclear one because I mean that would cause certain readings in the atmosphere. So um, I was gonna give that one to you, Sarah. Well, you don't have to. That's our stretch. <laughs> I I don't know. I I would totally believe that I forgot to write that down. So, um, well, I don't know. But don't take my word for it because you know okay. how well I pay attention to this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> okay. I'm not going to give myself a point on that because this is okay. is in doubt. <laughs> so. <laughs> All right. 
question number three. We see an establishing shot of the front of Starfleet Command before the probe arrives, and it's a beautiful sunny day, and there are some shuttlecraft parked out front. One is in, there's one in view, and it has a number written on it. What is that number? Zero two. I was just going to say two, but <laughs> don't know. Well, it may have looked like a two because it was a five, and they're kind of similar shapes, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> kind of the reverse, sort of. Maybe. Oh, when dyslexia kicks in. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a five. Okay. We're doing great, Megan. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> well, I, I don't expect I'll do <laughs> that much better, so we, we shall see <laughs> coming up next. All right, so that was question number three. For question number four, we go back to a dialogue question. What does the Klingon ambassador say that Vulcans are well known as? Ah, uh-huh, this is going to be one of my questions. <laughs> Dang it. I don't know this one. <laughs> I know. Pick me. <laughs> Did you want to hazard a guess, Sarah? Um, I can't remember it. I, I don't know. They were known as the intellectual puppets of the Federation. That is correct. Yeah, I would have not said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I had to guess, I would have thought like the lap dogs of the Federation or something like that. So, you know, I, I wouldn't have gotten it right off the top of my head either. Okay, and apparently when I was choosing my questions, I came up with a lot of number questions. Um... Because my last question, question number five, when the uh, garbage men were picking up garbage cans in the park, how many garbage cans were there? I only remember seeing two, but it's a park, so it's probably like way more than that. Well, they had them um, grouped together so that it was not counting the ones like in the distance. So like six? Megan, you got it on the nose. Did I really? Six garbage cans. I almost asked you, are we counting the one that got squished? (laughs) Yes, it did include that. All right, so those were my five questions. And at the end of that, uh, we have Megan with two points and Sarah and I even on zero. Okay, so now I shall roll again and see who gets to go next. Sarah, you get to go next. I was hoping it was going to be Megan. Need more time uh, to formulate your questions? No, I just wanted to not ask questions that she has. Gee, <laughs> <laughs> <She> thanks. <laughs> um, okay, so let me see here. Okay, question number one. In the scene where Spock and Kirk are getting on the bus and then they get back off the bus, we see the bus drive away. What is the number on the back of the bus? Believe it or not, I have that written down. Shocking. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I have no idea. Didn't know there was a number on the back of the bus. <laughs> All buses have numbers on them. <laughs> I, I, I'm aware. <laughs> this is the, where I just got caught up watching the movie and stopped taking notes. Yeah. So. Oh, really? This soon? Okay. Well, that's helpful. All right. I did right. take additional notes. It just In this okay. gap, I didn't. Okay. <laughs> Well, the number I have is 3513. 
Okay, that's right. Question number two. In the scene where Scotty is uh, doing his thing on the Mac Macintosh computer, we see some files and folders on the screen. Which folder or file did he open? He opened the one on the screen. <laughs> uh, not certain I caught any of the, the information from the screen. Yeah, I got nothing. I'm going to say the product specification folder. Uh, actually, I don't know what it's called. Uh, I can't read the <laughs> name. I'm asking, like, I guess what oh. I want to know is the position on, like, there are several files gotcha. on the screen and he opens one is in a specific position and so that's guess what I'm after. Second from the left. Top left. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I was gonna say third one down. <laughs> um, okay, well there are four rows of files. So <laughs> um, yeah, neither one are right. Uh, it's yeah. the bot it's the bottom right corner, basically. Okay. So all right. <laughs> Should have asked how many files were on the screen, but maybe you had that written down. Uh, question number three. When Spot goes to uh, continue his, I don't know, questioning by the computer, his training, whatever mm -hmm. it's called, uh, what is the second question that he's asked by the computer? Oh, I don't think I wrote down all of those. <laughs> I did not, and I was like, somebody's going to ask questions about this. <laughs> But they're so rapid paced that I I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I did not write any of those down. Um, what would it be? It's you just want to throw stuff out there. I'll give you a partial yeah. point if you're anywhere close. <laughs> I, I was gonna say the only thing coming to mind is something about mass times acceleration, but mm. somebody's law of thermodynamics was mentioned too, but I I don't know. Okay, yeah, no, it's, that's not close. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> he asked about, the, or he's asked about the molecular formula of eumenium, eumenium ah. sulfide crystals, or something like that. So, gotcha. Uh, okay. <laughs> so you guys are you guys are throwing physics at me, and this was a chemistry really question. Needed so. chemistry, yeah. <laughs> All right. It's so question number four. Um. In the scene where uh, Kirk almost gets run over by a taxi, we see a famous uh, donut shop. Um, what is the name of that donut shop? I did write that down. Dang it, are you serious? Yes. <laughs> I, I can even not. give you the address. Oh, man. Oh, okay. <laughs> what the heck? I Why do you have the address? Because it was written on there. Oh, my word. <laughs> Really? Yes. I didn't see that. Go ahead, Aaron. I got nothing. <laughs> yeah. It was Winchell's Donut House. Yes, that's right. <laughs> okay. All right. Last question. Which one do I want? So question number five. What uh, make was the pickup truck that um, Jillian drove? I thought about asking a question about the truck, but then I thought, no, it's too visible. And then, of course, I didn't write anything down about it. Yeah, I didn't either. <laughs> so now I'm totally lost. I think it was a Ford. I think. Yeah, I have no idea. So something is making me want to say Chevrolet, but I don't think it is. 
Okay, Aaron, you're right. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's <Wow>. hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it's a Chevy. Uh, I was pretty sure it wasn't a Ford, because Ford usually has Ford written in giant letters across the back, and I didn't see that. That's mm-hmm. so uh, round two. Aaron's <laughs> ahead with three points. Megan with two. Me with zero, <laughs> as usual. <laughs> well, you've only had one round of answering, yeah. so that's not fair. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so my turn. Um, question number one. Uh, we see the movie open with a dedication to the crew of the Challenger. The next thing we see is the Paramount logo. How many stars are on the logo? Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> this is count. <laughs> it counts as, a, as part of the movie. Yeah. I, I did write down that it was de- dedicated to Challenger, but uh, I did not think to note anything about the Paramount logo. Um, I feel like there's some symbolic thing to the number of stars too probably is i was trying to think of like what year paramount was um, yeah it would have been like early 20th century um it was founded in 1912 so i'm gonna go with 12 stars sarah how many times have you been on the paramount lot wow yeah (laughs) a few but i they don't have the stars well they do have it on the water tower I didn't count the stars while I was on the lot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with eight. I don't know. There are 22. Wow. So it's not <laughs> symbolic. <laughs> probably at all. Oh, it's probably symbolic of something. Of but, something, uh, yeah. 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 I did not look investigate to see why there are 22 stars. <laughs> um, let's see. Question number two. Uh, we see... Um, in the beginning of the movie that the probe is approaching the USS Saratoga, the captain of the Saratoga orders that they continue to transmit what to the probe? I did not write that down. But I'm... I'm gonna guess greetings in all languages. I was just gonna say a message, because I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Um, Aaron, I'll give you half a point. It's the, she specifically says universal peace and hello in all known languages. Ah, okay. So I got the languages. Yeah, you did. <laughs> oh, by the way, <clears throat> I was Googling. Um, Paramount has 22 stars because they represent the first 22 actors who were contracted with the studio during the old system days. Oh, wow. Okay. Just in case any of you out there were on the edge of your seat <laughs> wanting to know that. I was wondering why you got so quiet. Yeah. <laughs> I was like trying to Google and listen to your question at the same time. <laughs> like for a minute, I was like, is my mic muted? Like- <laughs> um, let's see. Question number three. Um, what cities on Earth are specifically mentioned as being affected by the probe? I did write down two of them. I remember Leningrad and I remember Leningrad. (laughs) (laughs) There are three. Three cities. I know, but Uh, I remember Leningrad. (laughs) Uh, I feel like there's a South American city they mentioned. Yeah, I I also have Leningrad. Um, I do have Juneau, Alaska. And what would be the other one? Was it Paris? 
was not South America, but for some reason that sticks out. <laughs> that is not South America. <laughs> no, no, it isn't. Um, I think I will go with with the. Do I want to go with South America or do I go with Asia? Um, oh, Tokyo, <laughs> Tokyo. Yeah, that was my other. So I'm going between Tokyo and Buenos Aires. It's, I'm going with Tokyo and Leningrad. <laughs> There's only only two. I'll give Juno to uh, Aaron. But... <laughs> okay, so between the two of you, I'll give you each a point. Because you got the three between the two of you. <laughs> so it was Juno, um, Tokyo, and Leningrad. Okay. I don't know why I wrote down two of them, but not the third. Let's see. Uh how many vessels did the Klingons lose to the effects of the alien probe? Oh, I may have written that down. Let me double check. No idea. Um, oh, sorry. This would be question number four. Nope. Three. I lied. Question number three. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> I don't. I'm positive. Oh, uh, no. I think I wrote down the, the Starfleet ships that were affected, not the Klingon ones. Something's making me want to say 15. I have no clue. Um, 11. <laughs> it's 13, right? <laughs> no, it was two. Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, when y'all said that, I was like, well, I'm guessing really high. <laughs> well, they just lost a whole armada. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, question number four. What is the name of the plant that Scotty and McCoy go to for the transparent aluminum? Uh, that I didn't write down because... Uh, oh, yes, I did. Ha! Transparent aluminum plant. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have PlexiCorp. That is correct. All right, and question number five I'm going to have to come up with from my notes because that was all my questions. Um, <laughs> uh, as they... As they are departing the uh, bird of prey to go in search of the whales, what were the coordinates to the whales? Um, I think I have that. It's like a longitude latitude thing, or is it like a Starfleet coordinate type thing? Um, neither. Like they give the okay. <laughs> well, well, all right. Um. <laughs> yeah, I did kind of wonder how. I mean, I I don't know how to get my bearings on things using, um, you know, compass or anything like that. So uh, this would not make sense to me, but <laughs> they had tricorders, so. 25 miles west of the Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> uh, I have um, 283 degrees, 15.2 kilometers. That is correct. Woohoo. Okay. So I have Aaron skunking us again. Yeah. <laughs> With six and a half points, I have two, and Sarah has one. Yay. <laughs> Just a great quiz <laughs> for Aaron. Uh, well, you know, I had a feeling I would at least do okay, but. You know, when, when Megan said she only had like a page and a half of notes and I was like a third of the way into the <laughs> the movie by the time I had a page and a half of notes. So That's what happens when I get caught up watching the movie and yeah. stop taking notes. Like with my pen and the notepad in my hand, just <laughs> get caught up in it and go, oh, I need to be taking notes. I don't know how much time has gone by. 
We're gonna try a picture on this. Let's get everybody one, please. Pictures up. Pictures up. Let's roll sound. Rolling. Rolling. Sound speed. Camera speed. Take two. Mark. And action. Alright, so we're going to get into some of the production details of this movie. First thing that stuck out to me was the really interesting tidbit that this was kind of what sparked um, Paramount to go ahead with TNG was the success of this movie. This also marks the first time that Michael Okuda, who is a well-known name in Star Trek, uh, started working on Star Trek. And he hmm. worked for 19 years after this, uh, but he designed a lot of the panels and stuff that we see on the ships. Also, a little interesting tidbit, uh, the character of Dr. Taylor was originally supposed to be a male character who was like a wacky college professor type and a UFO nut. And uh, for added humor, um, they were going to try and get Eddie Murphy to do the role. Eddie Murphy had a conflict, even though I think he's the one that approached them wanting to do something with Star Trek because he was a fan. Uh, he ended up not being able to to do it. So they went with um, what they did. So another little interesting tidbit. Um, this movie was titled Star Trek for the Adventure Continues originally, <laughs> which was an interesting name. And also there's a novelization of this movie, apparently, where there's a cut scene that uh, Sully meets a distant ancestor um, in San okay. Francisco, like his great-great-grandfather. Um, he's a, who's a kid in this movie and he was supposed to meet him and uh, it didn't happen because the kid that they hired for some reason wasn't a professional actor and basically just had like he wasn't he wasn't able to act the scene or whatever so uh, it didn't work out and so they ended up having to scrap that scene and uh, George Takei was really disappointed because it was his idea to do that in the first place so yeah it would have been cool yeah, it would have been pretty cool. Most of the shots of the humpback whales were taken using four-foot-long animatronics instead of real whales. They look so realistic that the um, U.S. fishing authorities uh, chastise Paramount for using real whales and getting too close <laughs> to them. And Paramount was like, uh, no, those were just fake whales. The scenes involving the whales were mainly shot in a swimming pool in the Los Angeles area, in a, in a high school swimming pool in, a, in the Los Angeles area. Also interesting was this movie has several uh, product placements in it, which is not the norm for Star Trek. They, of course, had the famous Apple computer scene in this where Scotty wrestles with a Macintosh for a minute. And Apple computer actually has a uh, credit in the ending credits for that. Uh, Pacific Bell, the telephone book, is mm -hmm. also shown. So uh, the writers for this this episode, or not episode, <laughs> movie, I'm going to do that this whole time. Yeah. The So the writers uh, start with Leonard Nimoy. He had a writing credit on this, and he also was a producer and the director as well for this. Um, Harv Bennett, uh, was a writer on The Wrath of Khan, Search for Spock, this uh, movie, and then the uh, Star Trek V Final Frontier. He actually appeared in 
uh, movies two, three, and five as well as little bit parts. And he was a producer on this uh, movie as, as well. So, and then we have two other writers, Steve Mearson and Peter Crikes, who uh, only worked. This is their only Star Trek credit. Nicholas Meyer, the writer for The Wrath of Khan, uh, this movie, and then The Undiscovered Country. He also produced on, well, he's producing Discovery right now, actually, hmm. which I thought was an interesting thing. Um, and then he also directed The Wrath of Khan and Undiscovered Country. So he's, uh, I thought his name was familiar to me, but I didn't realize why until yeah. <laughs> I read his credits. So, um, and then of course we have the director, Leonard Nimoy, would, it, would I which I just mentioned, he directed uh, The Search for Spock, uh, Star Trek Three, also. And he's directed some T.J. Hooker, which uh, starred William Shatner. The uh, This movie was released actually in Canada first, before the United States, hmm. which I think is a rarity. Yeah. But uh, Canada got it a few days before the United States on November 21st, 1986. The U.S. got it on November 26th uh, that same year. And then Australia got it on December 18th uh, before anybody else in the world did, <laughs> which is also odd. And uh, then Europe and uh, South America got it somewhere between 1987 and 1989, depending on your country. So. Huh. So an interesting uh, order of release dates there, I thought. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, the filming locations for this were mostly done in San Francisco on location. They did film at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, which is where the, um, shoot, I forgot the name of the Centanium or something like yeah. that. Uh, Cetacean Institute. Cetacean. Cetanium. It started the same. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's where that was. Uh, they filmed. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even going to attempt it. That word, <laughs> citation. I got it. Um, <laughs> the citation institute. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! They filmed at the uh, Naval Air Station in Coronado, California, for the aircraft carriers. Uh, of course, the Basquez rocks had to be in there somewhere um and the will rogers state historic park is where they filmed the uh parking of the klingon <laughs> bird of prey that's in the pacific palisades i've actually never been there but i've driven past it quite a bit so um and then the hospital that um they had to rescue check off in was uh, located in inglewood california which is an la area so that's all i got for that all right, so we will move on to the guest stars. And of course, I had to just kind of choose certain ones to highlight because if I went into everybody, we would be here forever. Uh, and I'm also going to be a little less detailed than usual and just kind of hit some of their big highlights. So we are starting off with Jane Wyatt, and she played Amanda Grayson, uh, who is Spock's mother. And she also played Amanda in a original series episode called Journey to Babel. So she was practiced in the role. Um, and then just some of her highlights, she got her start in Broadway theater in the early 1930s, but had her first film role in 1934 in a movie called One More River. And she was also in Great Expectations. Um, she is best known for her role in Lost Horizon and in the TV show Fathers Knows Best. 
And she had a big lull in her career because she was one of uh, many actors who was suspected of communist activities. So she was kind of blacklisted after that. Uh, She did work after that, but uh, had a bit of a gap in there. I have to say I was shocked when I first saw her because between now and the last time I saw this movie, I got into Father Knows Best Okay, and started watching that. And so when she walked in, it took me a minute. And then I was like, hang on, I know who who this person is from somewhere. And then it clicked. Oh, she's a mom and father knows best. Oh, my gosh. She was in Star Trek. Like, you couldn't get two, like, polar opposite things like father knows best in Star Trek. So, yeah, I was really shocked to see her. Yeah. (laughs) And she's still playing a mom. All right, so next we have Robin Curtis, who played Savick. Of course, we had Kirstie Alley, who played Savick in the first appearance, um, but uh, Robin Curtis took over that role. Uh, she played Savick in Star Trek Three and Four, and then she also appeared in uh, TNG episodes uh, Gambit, Parts 1 and 2, um, where she kind of played two roles, uh, Talera or T'Pol, um, and then she was offered the part of Kalar, but she was already working on another project. So she had a conflict there. Uh, she is now retired from acting, um, although she has made some, uh, guest appearances and she does still make some appearances at Star Trek conventions. Then moving on, we have Brock Peters. Uh, he played Admiral Cartwright and he also reprised that role in Star Trek VI. And then later on, he played Joseph Sisko, uh, Benjamin Sisko's father, in Deep Space Nine in several episodes there. Uh, he also voiced uh, General Mikog in the video game Starfleet Command 3. Um, but he is best known for playing Tom Robinson in 1962's To Kill a Mockingbird. Um but he has had such a long and storied career that uh, he was given a Life Achievement Award from the Screen Actors Guild in 1990. And uh, as far as Star Trek actors go, the only other actor uh, in a Star Trek um, franchise to receive that award is Ricardo Montalban. Another uh, actor that stood out to me was uh, John Shook, or Shuck, um, who played the Klingon ambassador. Um, he also reprised that role in Star Trek VI, so we have several characters that appeared in both of those movies. And he did appear in other Star Trek roles. Uh, he has played a couple other uh, Klingons. Uh, he was the Klingon doctor Antak in Enterprise. And he appeared um, as two non-Klingon characters, uh, a Cardassian in Deep Space Nine and a alien in Voyager. Um, but he is well known for being in the uh, Broadway production of Annie, where he plays Daddy Warbucks. Then moving on to the Federation president, he was played by Robert Ellenstein, um, and he also appeared in a TNG episode, and I thought it was very funny um, that you mentioned Haven in the music challenge, uh, because it was in the episode Haven that uh, Robert Ellenstein appeared. That's where it was. I was like, this guy is from a TNG episode, (laughs) and I can't place it. 
<laughs> okay, yeah, he played that the dad. It. He played the dad in that. Yeah, yeah, I get it now. Yep. And he has also had a very long career. Um, he appeared in at least 14 movies, uh, five TV movies, uh, and nearly 100 TV show episodes. And he has played over 100 stage roles. Uh, so very prolific actor. And uh, another tidbit for uh, him is his son, David, uh, appears as one of the doctors in the background in the hospital scenes. All right. So uh, now kind of one of the most prominent uh, guest characters was uh, Catherine Hicks, who played Jillian Taylor. Um, she it was funny to me because I had a moment of. I know I've seen her in something else and I cannot place her. Um, but she is best known for her starring role in seventh heaven where she played the, the mom in that oh, show. Yeah. Uh, and her husband in that show is also a fellow star Trek movie actor, Stephen Collins. He was in the motion picture. Yeah. He's Will yeah. Decker, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, she also crossed over with a few other Star Trek actors uh, when she was in the soap opera Ryan's Hope. Um, and she was crossing paths with Kate Mulgrew and Andrew Robinson on that show. And then, of course, um, I had to kind of bring up one of the kind of standout unique characters in this movie, which is uh, a character known simply as the punk on the bus. Um he was played by a man named Kirk Thatcher, and he, he's not typically an actor, um, but he asked Leonard Nimoy if he could play this role because he had experience with punk fashion and, and was kind of knowledgeable on that scene. Um, but he is mainly a puppeteer, model maker, um, you know, prop expert, and uh, he was also a producer. Um and he has done work for Industrial Light and Magic and also for Jim Henson. But he has a lot of interesting little tidbits throughout this movie. Um, he was the voice of the Vulcan computer that was asking Spock questions. And in fact, he wrote the questions for Spock to answer. Uh, he also wrote the song that plays on the boombox that he has in the bus and uh, he is still kind of dipping in and out of Star Trek um, all through the years. And uh, most recently, uh, in 2019, he was the narrator for an animated one of the short treks. Um, it was an episode called Ephraim and Dot. So those are the guest stars that I picked out to uh, highlight for this movie. What is that? What's wrong? You have a pocket pager. Are you a doctor? What is it? I thought I told you never to call me. Sorry, Admiral. We just saw you in Lake Canoe. We're beaming them in now. All right. Tell them phasers on stun. Good luck, Kirk out. You want to try it from the top? Why don't you tell me when those whales are leaving? All right, so we'll, we'll start out at the uh, beginning of the movie. Set in 2286, an enormous cylindrical probe moves through space, sending out an indecipherable signal and disabling the power of every ship it passes. As it takes up orbit around Earth, its signal disables the global power grid and generates planetary, planetary storms, creating catastrophic sun-blocking cloud cover. 
Starfleet Command sends out a planetary distress call and warns all spacefaring vessels not to approach Earth. I thought it was interesting in this movie, we get a lot of kind of background on how um, the setup of Earth works. Um, You know, we find out that most things are solar power and we've got kind of, um, you know, a defensive uh, fleet around, but, you know, some of it's just for working in the solar system, some of it's for outside and, you know, there's this kind of control center that's monitoring uh, the different power grids and all that kind of stuff. So I, I that was one thing that kind of struck me this time watching this movie. That was one of those things that I've sort of noticed but didn't. <laughs> so <laughs> um, when you were talking about that, I was like, well, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that was all in there. <laughs> it was one of those things where I was um, – I felt like I should have been paying more attention to it because I kind of like – learning how stuff works in the Star Trek universe, you know, is one of my favorite mm. things about Star Trek. I tell you what did stick out to me was like the uh, global weather system that they had too, because you just don't see that today. You know, when, when mm. you hear weather reports, it's always like this local or just national type thing. And you don't really pay any mind to international <laughs> weather at all. And yeah. so it just, I think it just under underscored the more like global um, aspect of Star Trek when it comes mm. to like Earth. Talking about a city on the other side of the world is is like talking about a city, you know, just down the road here. You know, it, it had yeah. that like that kind of feeling to it. Well, because they they could hop in a shuttle or yeah. get in a transporter and be there, right? The same way that we would just drive to the next town over, right? Earth is a much smaller community in the Star Trek universe. It's just an interesting th- place to go mentally to think about it that way. You know, uh, it's yeah. just so different. And also, the the movie showed its age a little bit by uh, mentioning Leningrad. Yeah, I was going to. I actually during our quiz, I was going to bring that up. I was like, when did it become Saint Petersburg? Um. Well, it was originally St. Petersburg, I believe, and then it was Leningrad when Lenin was in power. Well, Um, when did it switch back then? Yeah. I don't know the date. after the fall of the USSR. Yeah. Um, So in the 90s? I'd have to look it up. I came across this when I was doing research uh, behind the scenes stuff for this, and I just didn't write that down because there was so much to um, talk about. And so I'm wanting to say, like, it was while this was being filmed like the Soviet Union was still such a strong superpower that Mm -hmm. they uh, were under the assumption of like, why would this collapse and not be a, an actual thing in the future? And so I think it was 10 years after this or within 10 years after this, that this when the Soviet Union collapsed Mm. and it was changed back. I'm looking it up online. It says Leningrad. It was called Leningrad until 1991, apparently. So So it was filmed in 80... 86. Six. So yeah. six years later, five years later. So yeah, definitely showing its its age. And I think also like the humpback whale, because here we are, T- TOS is predicting another um, extinction of a species. And of course, we're in the 21st century when they apparently went extinct. So, you know, we yeah. don't know <laughs> how the century is going <laughs> to turn out. But I feel like there's a lot of protections in place for whales nowadays, and that's probably not going to happen, you know, unless something drastically reverses that. But yeah, 
don't know. I just had that thought kind of watching this as well. But at the time, you know, it was probably more of an issue. So for sure. And I mean, there's always um, the potential for some sort of catastrophic, um, you know, a environmental disaster or something like that, that could bring them back to the brink. But um, yeah, the message in this movie is very clearly that they went extinct because of hunting. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. Which that has been vastly decreased, but there are still countries out there that allow whaling. And um, I don't know how well regulated those things are as to which whales they're allowed to take and that sort of thing. Right. Well, I mean, this movie could have had an impact on that too. Like, I I don't know, you know, how much of an impact it had on, on like environmental protections and stuff, but. Right. Well, this, I was just looking this up as we were talking about it. And so um, in March of this year, Australia was considering removing humpback whales from the um, threatened species list. Oh, nice. Um, so that's that has not happened yet. Um, but they say that the due to regulations that the humpback whale population has bounced back from being nearly extinct. Well, I mean, even in North America here, I mean, bald eagles were on the the verge of extinction, and they've they've now been taken off the endangered species list. So. There, there have been some really good initiatives as far as uh, species protection and breeding efforts for, you know, things that can be bred in captivity and all of that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, you would know more about that than we would. You know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was true. kind of part of my job. <laughs> yeah. I did think, I know this is probably in, inside the fandom itself, this has probably been discussed a lot, but... The design with this probe was terrible. <laughs> yeah. Terrible. So on the, the History Channel thing that's airing um, right now in the States, is called The Center Seat, and it's on the 55 years of Star Trek. And so one of the episodes is the designs of ships. And they talked about the design of this probe, but didn't go into a ton of detail on it, other than just saying, like, it was is a modified version of the original design. Like, it had been built. And then... Mm. Um, when someone else took over, they like took some things off of it and spray painted it black to make it not look quite so much like a water heater. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but yeah, I just I thought it was just a weird design. This is this round cylinder going through space with what looks like a soccer ball <laughs> probe that comes out of it. So yeah, it looks more like a volleyball to me. Oh yeah, yep, yeah. It was very very strange. Well, who who was the probe from? Was it just like a random alien race that they never really explained? Or yeah, yeah, it was okay. just you know the the people who talk to whales. <laughs> okay, it also makes me wonder: Are they then saying that whale song can be heard in space, or is this a species that has specifically? Uh, scanned planets using like really long range uh audio sensors looking for beings that they could talk to like that's not explained either i will say also and in like this whole like first part too i was uh kind of curious about 
the change in the technology. Now, obviously, it's the eighties. Now it's not nineteen sixty six anymore. Yeah. But now they're using te- they're using touchscreens, and everything looks more like modern Star Trek here. And yeah. I wasn't sure like when that change happened. I wonder if it happened during this the motion movie. Picture. Mm-hmm. Oh, this movie. Okay. This movie. So um, when you were talking earlier about um, Michael Okuda. Um, I was actually going to bring that up later, but um, for this film, he introduced the touchscreen computer consoles. Okay. Okay. So, and then, so for the rest of the franchise, with the exception of the TV show Enterprise, use this um, system. Okay. Well, that kind of makes sense. I remember in our, one of our very first episodes, we talked about Michael Okuda being the one who kind of invented the touchscreen idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that would so, make sense. Yeah. Yeah. He did it for this film. Yeah, and we actually owe a lot of today's technology to that idea that he had. Mm-hmm. So on the planet Vulcan, the former officers of the late USS Enterprise are living in exile, accompanied by the Vulcan Spock, still recovering from his resurrection. <laughs> what the heck is going on? <laughs> so yeah, guys, he, died in the last, he died in the I, last... I know, I remember he died in the, the la- last part of Wrath of Khan, but I don't know what happened after that. Um, <laughs> gosh. Uh, That's why we need to watch these things in order. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I just took it as I remember him dying, and he's alive now somehow, and he's back on Vulcan, and it has to be re- like his brain something happened to his brain and he has to like be have his memories come back i don't know so here's a short recap so he dies at the end of wrath of god his body is put on the genesis planet when they activate the planet his body regenerates before he died he put his memories in dr mccoy (laughs) and so basically they went to vulcan and to put his memories and his body together and so now he's alive Okay, so like the plot of Picard now, basically. Yeah, okay. Pretty much. So Spock is recovering from his resurrection, and uh, the crew, except for Savick, is it Savick or Savick? Mm-hmm. Savick, who remains on Vulcan, take their capture Klingon bird of prey, rename the Bounty after the Royal Navy ship, and return to Earth to face the trial or face a trial for their actions. Receiving Starfleet's warning, Spock determines that the probe's signal matches the song of extinct humpback whales and that the object will continue to wreak havoc until its call is answered. The crew uses their ship to travel back in time via a slingshot maneuver around the sun, planning to return with a whale to answer the alien signal. (laughs) I'm just like, (laughs) the more I read this, the more ridiculous it gets. (laughs) So first of all, so on a Klingon ship... How would a Klingon ship know anything about extinct humpback whales? I know, well, they have like a whole catalog of the whales, too. They they said they linked into the Starfleet database. Okay, I missed that part. Yeah. Megan's pulling a me here, not catching any of this stuff. <laughs> I mean, as many times as I've seen this movie, I miss that every time, apparently. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting about them having this Klingon ship, too, because... It becomes so much a part of the the plot because if they had gone back in a Starfleet ship, they wouldn't have had a cloaking device, which would have meant they would have had to beam down and all this kind of stuff. Um, But it also adds to the whole fish out of water thing because they're on 
unknown territory before they even leave Vulcan. You know, trying to figure out the ship and making sure they've got everything set the way it needs to be and all of that sort of thing. Um, you know, the, it's a complete different uh, setting for these characters that we're so used to. Well, and they've been on Vulcan for three months, according to what is said in some dialogue. Yeah. Um, and so, and they're in exile there because of everything that's happened. Then they later state as they leave Vulcan, that it's not just over one and a half hours <laughs> from Vulcan to earth. Like, <laughs> and like, okay, so Starfleet has been telling them repeatedly, you need to get back here. <laughs> like, <laughs> Take an hour and a half and go get them. Like, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. It's just one of those, like when it was said, like how we're an hour and a half out from Vulcan. I was like, what? To be in exile for six months or three months because of <laughs> all this? And, you, yeah, you've been hiding. Yeah, so so far away. Well, the <laughs> the way I took it was that the the Vulcans were kind of giving them sanctuary because they helped Spock, and you know, not forcing them to return to Starfleet um, and just allowing them to stay there in safety, even though you know maybe Starfleet did send a ship for them, and the Vulcans were like, no, they can stay here. So they're offering them asylum. Yeah, essentially. It's, I mean, that's how I read it anyway. I don't know how any of that stuff works. I don't even know why they're <laughs> in exile. So it's a whole nother part of the plot that I don't I don't understand what's going on. Well, yeah, it, yeah it's because of the, the events of um, Star Trek 2 and 3. Well, I gathered that, but yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it is, you know, so. <laughs> the other thing I didn't understand was, so this probe is there to contact the humpback whales that are extinct, mm -hmm. but it's vaporizing the oceans. Is it mad? <laughs> and like just <laughs> killing the habitat of where they would be anyway? It's doing all kinds of weird stuff in the atmosphere yeah. too. My, my only possibility for that was I thought maybe they were like, all right, well, you guys live in the water. We can't, hear you are you hiding and it's it's almost like they're turning over all the rocks like oh if we take all the water you can't hide you i can't know. talk to us anymore either <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well they don't know they probably don't know how how it works down there yeah um, unless the whales told them i, I don't know <laughs> this whole thing is weird <laughs> i i think if this movie had taken itself super seriously it wouldn't have been as good as it is. I mean, it only works because it's comedic. Mm -hmm. But the the whole thing of them, like, anytime you do, like, time travel in Star Trek, it's always fun to watch, you know? So, like, yeah. I like that part of the movie. Well, speaking of time travel, what was with the trippy time travel montage? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> That was a little weird. I mean, I understand they're trying to represent, you know, metaphysics and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, that was a little strange. And the fact like when they travel again, that it doesn't happen. I want to know when time travel became, became so easy that you could just like do a slingshot maneuver around the sun. Yeah. It's like, what? That, that was actually a, a point I had written down to talk about was 
Okay, so they're now just talking about this like, oh yeah, you know that thing that we did before? We'll we'll just do that. Because- well, yeah, so they've done it. It was done two times in the original series TV show. So it was done in the episode Tomorrow is Yesterday and the episode Assignment Earth. So okay. like that's what they were referencing of like, we've done this before, so let's do it again. We know it works. Okay, well, isn't that like a thing that everybody would start doing i mean if time travel was that easy sure okay (laughs) i mean okay (laughs) why not (laughs) oh dear well we do end up with the you know a division of starfleet that is covering time travel and and all that sort of thing so maybe it does become a bit of a thing all right, so um, arriving in 1986, the crew finds their ship's power drained by the time travel maneuver, hiding the bounty in San, Francisco, San Francisco's Golden Gate Park. Using its cloaking device, the crew split up to accomplish several tasks. Uh, Admiral James T. Kirk and Spock attempt to locate the humpback whales, while Montgomery Scott, Leonard McCoy, and Sulu construct a, a tank to hold the whales. They need to return to the 23rd century. Uhura and uh, Chekhov are tasked to find a nuclear reactor whose energy leakage can be collected and used to repower the Klingon vessel. Yeah, I don't think these two whales could have fit inside that ship. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, when they, I remember thinking, like, when they're in the the cargo bay of the Klingon ship and they're, he's asking Scott, Kirk is asking Scotty how big it is and, you know, you need this 60 feet long and, um, so I'm thinking, like, as you you're seeing them in this set, mm-hmm. like it looks like it's all of twenty feet tall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, yeah, this this would not have fit at all <laughs> on this on this set. Like even later when they're being the special effects is beamed down, I'm like, yeah, that's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard to get perspective and all that sort of thing and have it come across as the correct scale well they did great when they were at the aquarium setting on that but not so much on the bird of prey set unless the bird of prey is much more massive than i think it is (laughs) one question i had pop into my head was when Spock is doing this calculation for needing to travel back in time and everything, why would he do it for a time period where A, the whales are scarce, and B, there's potential for them being caught? Because, you know, as they say, when they arrive in Earth orbit, you know, there, there are satellites at this time. They they could be detected. So then they have to cloak. Why not go like three, four hundred years further back than that when people have telescopes as the most complex thing and there's probably a lot more humpback whales and get them then? Well, also, they're parked in Golden Gate Park. Yeah. People are like doing stuff there. Like, wouldn't they be like running into the ship? And yeah, every- yeah. Especially I, since they're next to a picnic table. <laughs> yeah, I wondered that too because uh, there were several things that, having been to San Francisco, I was like, 
okay, now this this movie hits a little bit differently now that I've been there. Because um, Golden Gate Park is not out in the boonies. It's not lightly traveled. It's a busy place. <laughs> Yeah, and neither is Will Rogers State Park where they're actually shooting. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, Golden Gate, yeah, I've been there too. And uh yeah, it's there's tourists all over the place, you know, yeah. first of all. And yeah, San Francisco is a very crowded city. Yeah. Somebody would have run into the thing and then they would have reported it to authorities. Oh, like yeah. A lot of people would have reported it to authorities and there would have been an investigation going on, probably. So yeah. Yeah, there were, there were a few things about that, the fact that here they are in San Francisco and it doesn't totally make sense, even though it, they were setting it in present day uh, at the time, San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So things like Golden Gate Park not being very busy or, okay, so the everybody from the enterprise crew knows San Francisco. They've, they've all been there. Starfleet headquarters is there, but they don't know where Alameda is. Right. <laughs> Maybe Alameda doesn't exist in the 24th yeah, century. Like, or 23rd did, it, century. did it change names? Did it like, I, I don't understand. Well, I mean, it could have, <laughs> I mean, it's like 200 years later now. Yeah. So, so, but that's like, Oh yeah, we're going to San Francisco. Great. Where's Alameda? Like, mm-hmm. it just doesn't totally jive. I mean, you know, it is post-World War III, so it could have, Alameda True. could have been destroyed. But why would you destroy Alameda, not San Francisco? <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. who well, knows? And there were other things, like, um, they end up going to Sausalito for the the Cetacean Institute. Okay. Um, and then... So Kirk and Spock took the bus over there, but they walk back. That's a long walk. Mm -hmm. Um, And when Dr. Taylor, you know, meets up with them and says, hey, do you need a ride? They're like, yeah, we're going back to San Francisco. They were already on the San Francisco side of the bridge. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I, yeah, there were a few things that I'm just like, all right, that doesn't totally make sense, but sure. We'll go with that. (laughs) I will say though, this was one of my favorite stretch of the movie right here though. I love when they first get there and they're first walking around and trying to figure out stuff. I love Kirk's line. (laughs) This is one of my favorite movie moments of the entire movie is when (laughs) Kirk's like, okay, everybody's split up. Uh, you guys look like a cadet review or whatever. And then yeah. they all just kind of like look awkwardly around, you know, <laughs> yeah. and then they, yeah. they kind of like start slowly, you know, going off in different you know directions or whatever. I think that was hilarious, you know? Yeah. And then Spock's continuing, uh, you know, battle with like cursing the entire movie as well. <laughs> yeah. That, that yeah. start that starts in this, this little bit here too. It's, um, yeah, all these little things. And I like the, it, you know what, this movie, I think, for me, just highlights the um, the relationships between the characters. Yeah. You know, um, when, when, you, when you're taken out of that, like, super serious situation, you're able to just relax and just kind of hang out, you know? Um, I feel like the true nature of friendships and, and people tend to come out a lot. And so... Um, that's that's what that's that's what this movie is for me in a lot of ways, mm. and uh, especially not being like super familiar 
because not seeing, you know, most of TOS and not really remembering the other movies, you know, this, this movie just kind of really highlights a lot of the, the, the ease that these guys have with their relationship because they've been serving together for so long. And I love the banter between Spock and Kirk and, you know, all of that stuff. So that's, that's one of my favorite things about this movie is just seeing the characters kind of relate to each other. Well, the, um, the scene in the truck where they're, well, I mean, this is, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, um, like where they're picked up by uh, Dr. Taylor and taking them back. So, And they're talking about, you know, if they're hungry and how he loves Italian food and the other one does not. Like that scene was improvised. Oh, and it's perfect. That was immediately yeah. one of the scenes when Sarah Tard started talking about them playing off each other and being so comfortable in their characters. That was what I thought of was the, do you like Italian? Yes. No, yes, no, yes, no. Like that was <laughs> I perfect. Love and so do you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I don't think this movie would have been as funny if they had gone into a different time period. No, of know? course not. I yeah. mean, it needed to be present day right. in order to work. Mm-hmm. Which is why Spock chose that time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so Kirk and Spock discover a pair of uh, humpback whales in the care of Dr. Julian Taylor at the uh, Sausalito Aquarium. And they learn that the whales are going to be released into the wild soon. Kirk tells her of his mission and asks for the tracking frequency uh, of the whales, but she refuses to cooperate. Meanwhile, Scott, McCoy, and Sulu trade the formula of transparent aluminum for the materials needed for the whale tank. Mahura and Chekhov locate a nuclear-powered sub, the aircraft carrier Enterprise. They collect the power they need but are discovered on board. Mahura is beamed out, but Chekhov is captured and subsequently severely injured in an escape attempt. So, yeah, everything like in this section of the movie... It's just so good. So, like, them going to the aquarium and Spock diving into the tanks to mind meld with one of the whales <laughs> and watching Kirk's reaction to this happening. Scotty and McCoy going to the Plexicorp Foundation and and his the scene with Scotty talking to the computer and then oh, talking yeah. to the mouse of the computer. <laughs> and then him, like, single fingering on each hand and <laughs> typing in all that complex... <laughs> scientific Mm. formula and things them you know finding the enterprise and and getting all that and uh Chekhov's interaction with the I'm assuming it would be NIS on that ship like yeah um, and him you know running away from that like it's just so good this whole section of this movie yeah yeah it has some of the most iconic moments for sure um I mean all you have to do for a real Star Trek fan, just walk up and say, hello, computer. Right. And yeah. they're going to know what you're talking about. Yep. <laughs> it's all the things that I still laugh at today. Like, oh, as yeah. many times as I've seen this movie, it's still funny. Yeah. And, you know, like you say, Chekhov going back and forth with the the authorities on the ship. And it's like, all right, well... If that's all you're going to tell us, then we're done here. Okay, can I go now? <laughs> like, it's yeah. just like, it doesn't ha- compute that he's under arrest. Well, you know, I think it's it also like back then with the, you know, the Cold War still going on, you know, mm-hmm. it was probably even funnier 
you know, to, to people watching it. But I guess they didn't know the history of, <laughs> of what was going on with the U.S. and Russia at that, or the USSR at that time. Yeah. Uh, it didn't even, like, occur to them, which is kind of interesting. But Chekhov is from Russia, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So he would know his own history, you would think. But You would think. Well, you also don't know, like, how much of history is lost following World War Three because it's, I mean, we see in first contact that the planet's been decimated mm. from world war three um so i mean the more recent history of that time could have been lost just and if family members if it's was a it world war three took place 40 years from now so like this is my grandparents generation so and another those are the great 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 grandparents well the family stories have been lost from the people that survived all that, you can see why the the history of the 20th century may not be a, a super remembered time. Because you still have the eugenics wars that happened around this time. Like, that happened pre-World War III. Hmm. You have a much better handle on the timeline <laughs> in like, Star Trek than I do. I don't know. But that's, like, all I know. Like, I don't know a ton about it. I don't know anything about the eugenics wars. I think it had something to do with Khan. Maybe, but yes, yeah, okay, it did. It was all the genetic engineering. That's why, like, genetic engineering is banned in Starfleet. Is from the eugenics wars and from Khan. Yeah, okay. uh, didn't know that. I know about the World War Three just because of the reference to it in First Contact. You have a point, but also I feel like um, Picard is like really, really good with history. <laughs> like he seems <laughs> to know all of this stuff, you know. Um, like a lot of the TNG episodes do like reference fairly recent history um, as if they know it, you know? So I don't know. Well, I was even thinking regardless of the, the interaction between the U S and Russia and all that sort of thing, just the fact that you've been caught on a shit that very clearly you knew you weren't supposed to be on. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Like and he's acting like he doesn't know that he's in trouble, um, which could just be a quirk of Chekhov being, you know, kind of the more light-hearted character that he often is. But um, yeah, it that whole scene, as funny as it is, it almost seems like Chekhov's playing dumb, but well, I was not quite say- playing that way i was gonna say i kind of took it as he knows what that he's in trouble he's just trying to play it off yeah you know he also commits like a pretty big violation of the prime directive by running out with his 23rd century or gear (laughs) left behind so that was something that was brought up um that i didn't make any notes on um when i was doing behind the scenes stuff that was like yeah that was pretty dumb of him to run out without getting any of his stuff not that it would have helped at all but he also leave all this stuff here to be reverse engineered later yeah he also totally just told them he was from starfleet well maybe um he figured that they thought he was crazy and wouldn't take it seriously or anything i mean i i kind of thought that they um because they you know the guards were like yeah shoot us with your ray gun or whatever so it almost was an implication they thought it was like a toy that he made up or something you know not real uh so that's kind of the way i took it yeah well it also would have been klingon stuff too which it took me a second in some of those scenes where i thought oh 
Why are they using such weird looking phasers and tricord? Oh, right. They have a Klingon ship. (laughs) Yeah. I will have to say this. I really like the character of Jillian Taylor in this movie. Um, She is one of my favorite guest characters, I think, in all of the Star Trek movies. I love her personality. I love how she thinks that they're crazy at first and then she, but she has an open mind and mm-hmm. she's willing to uh, entertain the possibilities of them being from the future or whatever. And I love how she just, you know, skipping to the end of the movie. I just, I love how she just integrates immediately <laughs> into yeah. the 23rd century <laughs> as if no problem, you know, but I just, I, I just love her character and I love the chemistry that she has with Kirk as yeah. well. I think it's unfortunate that they didn't um, pursue anything between those two characters later on. She seemed like she uh, wasn't interested in that anyway. So Yeah. I kind of liked that they didn't go that way because I think it would have been, I mean, explore it in a in another movie, have him continuing to uh, interact with her. But the fact that they didn't just automatically, all right, the, the leading man and the leading lady get together. Um, no, no, no. I, I, I mean, like, uh, I'm glad that they did what they did, but yeah. I, I wish like later down the line, yeah, she had reappeared or something like that, you know? Yeah. And I would agree with that. I think she would have been cool as a character to bring back, um, as someone who, comes from a different time period and then has had to learn all this stuff. So even from that perspective and yeah, they did have a great chemistry together. So they, they could have been um, two that would have played off each other very well. I also like that Sulu just manages to talk his way into getting to use this helicopter. Yeah. So I do have one behind the scenes um, note that's in this section of the movie. Um, so the um, the aircraft carrier sequences in this section of the movie were filmed aboard the conventionally powered USS Ranger. Uh, the USS Enterprise was out to sea and not available. Um, even if it was available in 1986, the engineering spaces of nuclear vessels were still highly, highly classified. Mm. And they would never have been able to film on the Enterprise. It is neat that they added in that bit of history that the name of the ship being Enterprise goes back. And I know that in one of the TNG movies, we get seeing the the original wooden naval vessel and that sort of thing. So it, it's nice to have that tie in. Well, I have to say also, as a former Apple employee, I, I love that they had one of the old Apple computers in this and it was a product placement in this part of the movie. <laughs> and I remember even when I was younger that this, the scene where uh, Scotty's doing the stuff on the computer was one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, but I was watching it. And I was like, computers don't work that way. <laughs> the way he's doing it. Like, no, you don't just start typing and all of that stuff appears on the screen like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with, with just your index fingers. Typing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I will say I That's was... how my dad typed. <laughs> Hunt and peck. I was watching that scene carefully because I thought that might have been one of the scenes where you actually see uh James Dewan's missing finger. 
And I wonder if that was part of him doing the two finger typing is because that allowed him to keep the rest of his hand clenched so that you wouldn't notice. Um, because in every other shot in that sequence, it's very carefully positioned. So you never see his right hand. Mm-hmm. Um, you only see his left and there are a lot of things in this movie. It, now that I know that that's a thing, it's something I look for <laughs> anytime we're watching the original series. Um, and Scotty does a lot of stuff. If he's reaching up to the wall panel or something like that, he does it with his left hand mm-hmm. so that that doesn't show. Yeah, it was just weird because they're obviously using a Windows interface, you know, and it's just like, why would you tell him just to use the computer, the keyboard and not use the mouse at all? Because it's made to use the mouse. Like, that's how yeah. you navigate everything on the computer. I, I think just because he very obviously didn't know how to use the mouse. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but so he knows how to do all of these commands on Mac yeah. OS from 1986. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, I I agree. It is strange that he just sits down. And there are other times like that where characters from uh, our future of Star Trek that go back in time and then all of a sudden they can just like type and use computers like they know what they're doing so yeah yeah. i mean it's a funny scene but some of that stuff is just kind of like oh my gosh (laughs) well and and talk about you know breaches of the prime directive and stuff at least there it's acknowledged because uh you know mccoy leans to scotty and says are you know are you sure it's a good idea to give him this (laughs) the formula for the aluminum Mm -hmm. and uh you know of course he says how how do we know he didn't invent it i don't know i just feel like uh when the entire future of earth is on the line (laughs) you just don't really care as much about the prime directive (laughs) but there's a really fun meme that is going around of showing the different captains and their uh attitude toward the prime directive and um you know, Kirk's is basically, <laughs> what's that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So uh, Jillian learns that the whales have been released early and goes to Kirk for assistance. Jillian, Kirk, and McCoy rescue Chekhov from a nearby hospital and return to the now recharged bird of prey. After saving the whales from whalers and transporting them aboard, the crew returns with Jillian to their own time on approaching Earth, the Bounty loses power due to the alien probe and crash lands in the waters of San Francisco Bay. Once released from near drowning, the whales respond to the probe signal, causing the object to reverse its effects on Earth and return to the depths of space. So speaking of somebody running into the ship, <laughs> <it would be laughs> yeah, Jillian doing the same thing. And so, yeah, doing what we what other people would have been doing but like her reaction to be beaming to being beamed on the the uh klingon ship was funny yeah um like who wouldn't freak out by by Mm -hmm. that happening to them and then she just immediately assumes that that means like her story is true as well yeah Yeah. so it's like yeah something weird just happened and you don't recognize where you are but that does that mean that you're on a spaceship from (laughs) the future like i don't know Well, Well, if I had just been transported from one location to the next, I would believe you. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, you either then know it's true or you've just gone as crazy as they are. So 
it's true. Yeah, I guess. I guess I have a little bit more of a speculative brain. I would not just leap to that assumption right away. I would have been like, okay, I got to investigate this a little bit more. Well, she was a little distraught at that point. I guess so. And and I say rightly so. I would be so upset if that happened to me. Like, I mean, I worked in a zoo and there, there were a lot of animals that we sent to other zoos and all that sort of thing. And if that had been done without me knowing that they were leaving and I, I didn't get to say goodbye, I would have been so upset. So in that scene in the movie, she really did slap that actor. And <laughs> um, his reaction is his genuine reaction to being slapped in the face. That's the first take. Wow. So they were, it said later, they were more surprised that he stayed in character instead of like breaking character to, to stop the scene. And like, so, but he, he didn't, he managed to stay in character. So did uh, they know that she was going to do that or? Mm-mm. I think it was, um, I think they knew that it was supposed to be a slap, but like, just supposed to be like a movie slap where you don't actually hit the mm-hmm. person, but she full out slapped him in the face. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I wonder if that uh, was a mistake or if she actually was going to, like, meant to do that. I don't know. I'd have to go back and and find that again. Because I feel like that would be very unprofessional for her to just slap another actor without consent. Well, and then to not break character herself and apologize. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I did like this. Of course, the hospital scenes at Mercy Hospital are fantastic of Dr. Oh, McCoy yeah. curing the, the woman in the hallway that's in kidney <laughs> failure with just two pills. Oh, uh, yeah. Basically, how this- did you have those pills with him? <laughs> right. Yeah. He yeah. just had a medical kit. <laughs> but yeah, basically, this whole time we've been talking about the movie, I've had the, the music from that scene going through my head because it's just kind of been stuck there periodically since we watched this movie. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, it's uh, one of the music challenges I did for you, too. It was, yes. So the whaling ship that was used um, in this mm-hmm. section, um, it is a um, a World War II minesweeper ship. Um, it was called the Golden Gate. Um, and the whale hunters on the ship are speaking Finnish. Okay. I was trying to figure out what language it was, and I didn't get anywhere near that. They said, which is like unusual because it wouldn't have been in the area that where they have gone to go get the whales. Like it, it wouldn't have been a finished <laughs> yeah. crew in that area of the ocean. But they just picked a language that um, that I think that the people who, if I'm remembering right, people will correct me on this. That I think it was the people that own the boat spoke Finnish, so they just had them act that out. Oh, okay, but I could be wrong on that. I don't. There was something to do with that, um, but I could be wrong. That's also one of the most iconic images from this movie is the Klingon bird of prey above this whaling ship on the surface of the ocean. Yeah, the, the harpoon hitting the side of the ship. <laughs> They're just hitting nothing in air from what they're seeing. Yeah. But uh, going back to what Megan was talking about with the, um, the cargo bay being turned into a big tank for the whales... Uh, one thing that I was keeping my eye on and I, I didn't notice it. Um, I don't think the angle of the camera showed properly, but did they account for air above the whales? I thought of that too. 
Especially when later on it's like, we better release them. They're going to drown. I'm like, well, wouldn't they have done that before? Because like, they had no yeah. way to surface. Yeah, it didn't look like there was space there. Um, so, and just yeah. how much oxygen would have been in that gap, even if they did have a space. Exactly. You'd have to have a pretty good air circulation vent right above it. <laughs> So later at a hearing in front of the Federation Council acknowledging their part in saving the planet, all charges against the Enterprise crew are dropped, save one for disobeying a superior officer, which is solely leveled at Admiral Kirk. Kirk is demoted to the rank of captain and returned to the command of a starship. Kirk and Julian part ways as she has been assigned to a science vessel by Starfleet, while Spock's father, Sarek, finally accepts his son's earlier choice to enter Starfleet. The crew discovers they've been awarded the newly christened USS Enterprise NCC 1701A and leaves on a shakedown mission. So I did find it interesting that it was earlier in the beginning of the movie that it's mentioned that the Enterprise crew are facing nine charges. And you get to this scene and there's only six said. Because um, I, I wrote them down. I was like, there's only six here. <laughs> <laughs> we got nine. That's what you told the Klingons. They're facing nine charges, nine violations. Maybe some of them were like two counts of. or <laughs> Well, six is just an inverted nine, so maybe they got confused. <laughs> <laughs> nine sounds better. We're going to tell the Klingons it's nine. <laughs> I did think it was interesting, like all of the, that we saw on both ends when the Federation Council's um, in this movie of the different alien species that's on the council. Mm. All, almost all of them. We have no idea what species they are. Yeah. Including the robot weird ones. <laughs> but I mean, great imagination on having all these different species at the Federation council. But why would you be bringing them before the Federation council? Yeah. Isn't this like a Starfleet issue? <laughs> yes. Yeah. They've, been, they've been charged with Starfleet uh, violations of Starfleet regulations. Yeah, I, I thought that was strange, too, because they call it a court-martial. And that, to me, would be in front of admirals in Starfleet, mm -hmm. not the you know president of the Federation. I did find it interesting that um, Jillian is going out on a vessel. Now, we're assuming... It's a space vessel, or I don't know if she says she's going out into space, but, uh, you know, she came forward in time saying, well, you know, <laughs> you're going to need a cetacean biologist. and you know, Nobody in your time knows that much about humpback whales. And then very shortly after they get back, she's like, all right, see you later, Earth. I'm going out yeah, into yeah. space. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I'm out. I, I'm assuming by the way she was dressed and stuff that maybe she was on a civilian science vessel. But, uh, you know, I have no basis for that other than she wasn't in a Starfleet uniform. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, she should have stuck around to make sure that Gracie had her calf. Yeah. <laughs> her calf survived well. And like, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, and they're going to have to do some, like, genetic work with these whales because they only brought two forward in time right. so mm -hmm. even if gracie's calf survives let's assume it be it's a female well then you only have one male humpback 
So that's going to be really low genetic diversity. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, maybe by the 24th century, they've got processes they can use to um, mutate genes just enough that it can artificially create diversity and therefore strengthen a population. But uh, I mean, I would think that would be something that Jillian would be right on top of. Yeah. And I don't even know if they would be able to release the whales out in i mean like they have to make sure that they repopulate and they have to keep track of them you know so i guess you could release them out in the wild but you'd have to you definitely have to track them and stay right on top of where they are and stuff yeah just to make sure that happens and but you know with starfleet technology that's probably easier than it would be today so i have a few more um behind the scenes trivia that i've found there is a lot out there and a lot that i'm not going to mention just because, like Aaron, if I didn't pick and choose, we'd be here forever. So, <laughs> yeah. So prior to the release of J.J. Abrams' Star Trek in 2009, this movie was the highest grossing film in the franchise. The shot of the whales at the end of the movie as they're swimming past the Golden Gate Bridge um, was actually filmed on location and nearly ended in disaster when one of the cables was caught on a nuclear submarine and the whales were towed out <laughs> to sea. The shot of in the movie of the bird of prey um, heading towards the sun at warp speed um, was reused with additional disruptor fire in Star Trek The Next Generation in the episode Redemption Part 2. Hmm. This film marks Majel Barrett's final performance as Christine Chapel. Um, this film also has the last on-screen appearance of a Starfleet Commodore um, until Star Trek Enterprise. Um, episode the first flight and then after that it was not seen this rank was not seen again until star trek picard i've mentioned this before um in one of the reviews of uh, next generation um but the table the lighted table in starfleet command um became the pool table located in main engineering in next generation the uss saratoga seen early in the movie was actually a slightly modified shooting model of the USS Reliant from Star Trek Wrath of Khan. The bridge set of the Saratoga was a redress of the bridge set from, of the Grissom from uh, the movie search for Spock. And that set was a redress of the enterprise bridge (laughs) from the first three movies. So they did a redress of a redress of a redress. The camera shot of the captain of the Yorktown um, giving a report was filmed on that bridge set as well. Um, The bridge set of the Klingon ship um, that we see in this movie, even though it's supposed to be the same ship, Klingon ship from Star Trek 3, the bridge set is actually different (laughs) from Star Trek 3. I don't know why they would have redone the bridge set, but they did. The clothes worn uh, by Leonard Nimoy as Spock during his swim in the whale take were auctioned off at the It's a Wrap sale and auction. I don't know how much it went for. Um, If anyone knows, let me know. This is the only original series movie that has no subtitles on it, not even to establish a location or a time frame. Interesting. When I found that, I was like, yeah, it it isn't. (laughs) Otherwise, (laughs) they would have translated the finish so we could have seen what they were saying. So this film and Star Trek Beyond are the only two movies not to feature a Starship Enterprise as the primary setting of the film. Uh, This is the only film in the entire Star Trek franchise where no one dies. This film uh, features the only instance 
in which Kirk says, Scotty, beam me up. And the captain of the USS Saratoga, seen at the beginning of this film, um, has the first female captain ever seen on Star Trek. All right, so looking at some of our interactions over on social media, we had some fun discussions recently um, about art in Star Trek. Um, I had mentioned that uh, Star Trek puts a big emphasis on sciences and on uh, personal interaction and, and politics and that sort of thing, but it doesn't leave out the arts. Um, and so I had mentioned several different instances where we see art in Star Trek, um, whether it's visual arts or writing or anything like that. And um, we had some um, interactions. I had asked everybody what is their favorite uh, instance of art being shown in Star Trek. One that uh, I didn't know about because I haven't seen this episode of the original series yet uh, was actually uh, brought forward by um, Evan Kapitansky, I believe he has his name as, um, which is there are there are paintings of Khan in the original series episode um, Space Seed uh, and there's a, a discussion there about um, him being the subject of these paintings. Um, and uh, a couple people seconded that, uh, particularly uh, Svart Kors. Um, and then uh, the nerdy flutist brought up uh, music being represented in Star Trek. And she said that her favorite uh, scene of that is with Picard in the turbo lift, or sorry, in the Jeffrey's tubes, uh, practicing music with a fellow character in a particular episode. And the name of the episode has slipped my mind and I didn't write it down. So I apologize for that. But uh, since I didn't include uh, a picture from a musical scene in my post, uh, she did ask, uh, do, are you counting music as the arts? And yes, absolutely. It is part of the arts. Um, I had just had to narrow down, um, the images I was using <laughs> to just a few for the posting. And then one that really made me laugh, um, a poster uh, calling calling themselves Trekken on Twitter uh, brought up the episode where there's an incident on the Enterprise in TNG and there's a warp core breach and somehow time has slowed down and Picard draws a smiley face on the uh, mm -hmm. cloud coming out of the warp core. And um, that made me really laugh when, <laughs> when I saw that yeah. picture and believe it or not, I actually drew some fan art of that when I was a kid. So um, it was something that, uh, that really made me smile and I had completely forgotten about. So thank you Trekken for reminding me of that. Uh, I'm going to try and do some of these sort of topic posts on our social media and just get some discussion going about, some of our favorite elements of Star Trek that maybe don't get discussed as much uh, because they're uh, either background things or they're little tidbits that are put in there to flesh out characters 
and they they never become big plot lines. So if there's anything like that that you want to discuss and bring to our attention and share with your fellow listeners, uh, you can post that over on our social media or you can email us directly to see if we want to start a conversation about it. We do have our email, which is uh, tribblesandtransporters at gmail.com. And then you can also find us on the different social media platforms. We have our Facebook page and group. We also have Twitter at Tribbles Podcast. And we have Instagram for Tribbles and Transporters Podcast. So you can find us on any of those pages and leave us a comment, send us a message, and uh, we would love to start a discussion with you. The links are in the episode description if you're listening in an app that lets you have easy access to that. Um, our next episode is going to be going back to the original series, so we're going to stick with the same crew that we've been talking about today. Um, we're going to be watching the first season episode, The Enemy Within. Uh, no idea what it's about. I guess we will be surprised, or I will be surprised anyway. Have either of you seen that episode? If I have, sure. it's yeah, it's not coming to mind. But like you, the title does sound familiar. Well, we hope you guys will join us for that. And we appreciate you listening as always. And uh, we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Let's see. Question number four. Um, once the uh, crew of the Enterprise arrive in the um, in San Francisco, we see a wide shot of one of the streets of the city. What is the name of the first building visible in that wide shot? It's big, giant yellow sign. Hmm. Winchell's Donut House. It's <laughs> 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 a big yellow sign. Um, all right. So before y'all give another answer, I've, my question was worded differently from Sarah's, but it's the same answer. Okay. <laughs> I was just going to say the only sign I wrote down and the only other yellow sign I could Sorry. come up with. Was- it's been two weeks since I've seen this movie. <laughs> so let me come up with a different question. Okay. Oh man, I can't get the point for that. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was trying to come up with a different building because I'm like, the only sign I wrote down is that one. (laughs) Oh, man. All right, so we're going to start at the beginning of the movie. Um, Set in 2286, an enormous cylindrical probe moves through space, sending out an... Here we go. Some big words in this paragraph. (laughs) I wasn't ready for it. I haven't read this yet. (laughs) I didn't know when I was just reading along with you, and I was like, I don't know that I would pronounce cylindrical right the first time.